Happy Pentecost Sunday to you. If you've been here for a while, you know when is Pastor Jade's favorite Sunday of the year? It's Pentecost Sunday. And there perhaps is no other Sunday that has more resistance and warfare around it for me than Pentecost Sunday for some reason. I don't know what that's about, but uh, I just believe it's because God has some incredible things that are in store for us every, every Pentecost. So turn to your neighbor, point them, just point right at them and say, expect great things today. Amen. Man, it's so good to have you in the house of the Lord with us. I have a couple of just quick reports and quick announcements that I want to make before we jump into the word. Uh, Two weeks ago, I had been feeling this stirring in my heart that we needed a space and we needed a place to go a little bit deeper. I love Sunday mornings, but let's just be honest. Can we really get everything that we need to get done in an hour and 20 minutes with the level of teaching and the level of preaching and the level of worship and the level of prayer and ministry and activation? Can we get all that done in an hour and 20 minutes with what we're facing outside of these walls week in and week out? I determined that we couldn't. And I felt like there just needed to be a space where we could breathe a little bit and we could go a little bit deeper. And so we're doing that on Wednesday nights. And so for the past two Wednesdays, we've been teaching on the person, the presence, and the power of the Holy Spirit. And we've been doing that in preparation for Pentecost Sunday today. Again, I knew that to get to where I wanted to get us as a church on this particular Sunday, we just weren't able to going to make it happen on a Sunday morning, and we've been in the book of 1 John, so I needed a place where we could lean in on these powerful scriptures about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Two weeks ago, we had, I don't know, about 115 people in the room hungry. I mean, like you could taste the hunger in the atmosphere. It was amazing. Funny story, earlier that day, because this was really a faith move for me, and we didn't have people sign up, or we didn't have them RSVP, so I said, Lord, if there's 10 people in the room, I'm going to be happy. I'm going to be excited, and I'm going to be faithful, and I'm going to give them everything that I got. And I walked in at 6.20, and there was already about 70 people in the room, and then they just kept coming, and they kept coming. And I asked this question two weeks ago. I said, how many of you have grown up either hearing nothing about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, or you've heard negative things about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And to my surprise, about two-thirds of the room raised their hand. I'm going to ask that same question today just so I know the audience that I'm communicating with this morning. How many of you growing up, you were in a church, and either there was nothing that was ever spoken explicitly about the person, the power, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, spiritual gifts, speaking in tongues, or if there was something spoken, it was explicitly or implicitly negative. Just can I see hands here in the room today? Okay, beautiful. Um, I have had this growing conviction in me for the past several weeks that there are certain dynamics and dimensions to the Christian life that are absolutely critical to our strength and to our victory. The spirit-filled life is critical to power and authority and victory in the Christian life in this hour. The spirit-filled life is critical to higher levels of hunger and passion. The spirit-filled life is critical to activating faith when you feel like you don't know what to do, when you feel like you've hit a wall in your spiritual life. 
I just, I have come to experience and I have come to be absolutely convinced, both experientially and scripturally and theologically, that the spirit-filled, spirit-led, spirit-empowered life is the life that God has intended for all of us. And I hope to give you a little bit of a preview and a precursor of that here. And keep in mind that it's just going to be an overview. And I encourage you, those of you who have not been at the Wednesday night classes, if you want to hear a little bit more on today's topic, you can actually access those teachings uh, at our YouTube channel. All right, so with all that being said, let's jump in. All right, Seth did a phenomenal job giving us um, an idea of what Pentecost Sunday is. I'm just going to hit that again very quickly. So from a historical timeline, Jesus, the Son of God, born Uh, launched into his ministry, three years, three and a half years of powerful ministry. The scripture actually says that he was anointed by the Holy Ghost. He was anointed by the Holy Spirit to do good. Anointed by the Holy Spirit to do good and to destroy the works of the devil. He was crucified at the hands of sinful people. Three days later, he was resurrected by the power of God. We just celebrated that on Easter Sunday. All right, he resurrects from the dead, and the scriptures tell us in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, that Jesus spends 40 days, and he recruits a number of people, his, his 12 disciples and more, about 120, and he goes into a full-on 40-day intensive teaching them about the kingdom of God. All right, and then he's ascended into the heavens, and then the disciples wait for another 10 days. And they wait at the instruction and the command of Jesus to wait in Jerusalem. And then 10 days later, the Spirit of God is poured out on the day of Pentecost. That is this day. That day is very important for a number of reasons. In a lot of ways, you could say that a lot of the events from Jesus' incarnation to his crucifixion to his resurrection to his ascension, they were all pointing a straight line to this one moment, to Pentecost. They were teeing up Pentecost. They were setting things in motion for the church to be birthed in the earth. And here's why. Because the spirit-empowered, spirit-filled church is God's remedy and solution to the brokenness of the world. It's the spirit-filled, spirit-empowered church that carries the gospel in power and authority. It's the spirit-filled, spirit-empowered church that accesses and operates in the gifts of the spirit to help bring the kingdom into the earth in our hour, right? It has always been, can't say always, but God's solution to bringing the kingdom into the earth is the church, all right? They're not in competition with each other. It is the church working in tandem with the spirit through which the kingdom of God comes into the earth. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, this morning to the book of Acts, chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they, being the disciples who had remained with Jesus, they were all together in one place, and suddenly, suddenly, everybody say suddenly. There are certain things in God that happen suddenly. In fact, this word is used often throughout the book of Acts. And there's these two different notions of time that you see throughout the scriptures. You see one form of time, it's called chronos time. It's where we get the word chronological. It's as if you're just, it's not that you're going through the motions, but you're just being faithful chronologically. You're putting in your time. 
your mastering time, your understanding intentional rhythms with time. You're being faithful with time. You're being intentional with time. And then what happens is you find that there are these moments, there are these kairos moments in the Greek, where it's almost like the fulfillment of your chronological faithfulness come to bear and something opens up, right? It's a divinely appointed time. Things just happen suddenly. You didn't make them happen. You were faithful in the chronological seasons of time, and then God moved on that, and he breathed on that, and a kairos moment of time. And that's what's happening here. When you hear the word suddenly, I want you to hear a divinely appointed time that God has been preparing. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. We need to understand that when the New Testament uses language, a lot of times, most of the time, New Testament scriptures are borrowing pictures and events and symbols from the Old Testament. So there are a lot of things that are happening right here in this one verse. One of the things that you should be hearing or you should be thinking about is the echo of Ezekiel chapter 37, where God brings the prophet out to a valley of dry bones, and he says, Ezekiel can these dry bones live? And Ezekiel responds, well, only you know, Lord. And then God begins to coach and mentor Ezekiel in the realm and role of the prophetic to actually prophesy to the dry bones and then to prophesy to the wind. And we find that when Ezekiel prophesies to the wind, that the wind begins operating in tandem with the voice of God to begin pulling these dry bones together and wrapping them together with sinew and tendon and muscle and flesh. Like this is a throwback right here. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind. Notice it's not a gentle wind. It is a violent wind. It is a wind that changes things. Like we're familiar with that here in Colorado Springs, right? So there's moments when everything is nice and it's calm, and then all of a sudden there's these hurricane-esque winds that can be dangerous. And the thing that you need to imagine or the thing that you need to work with when you hear violent winds is that violent winds disorient things. Violent winds turn things upside down. There are certain times and seasons in our Christian lives where we've got things a little too orderly. Things are too conventional. Things are too predictable. Things are too safe. Things are too comfortable. Things are too convenient. And there are moments, if you allow God, that he will actually disorient things in your Christian life because there's things that he needs to get out. There's debris and residue that he needs to get out. And then there's new things that he needs to get in. And sometimes that can just be a little upsetting. How many of you are with me this morning? Suddenly the sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven. It's not a cute wind. I'm okay with the violent wind in Midtown. Y'all just need to know. I'm okay with the violent wind. I'm okay with God coming in his power. Violent, when you hear violent wind, you hear power. Right? We need the power of the Holy Spirit in this hour like never before. Verse 3, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire. So here you've got violent wind and tongues of fire that separated And it came to rest on each of them. Here's what I find very interesting. 
is that the violent wind filled the whole house and the tongues of fire separated and rested on each of them. Do you realize that every time that we gather together, God has multiple agendas that are in play? God has a collective and a corporate agenda. There is something that God is doing in us as a people collectively. We have a corporate identity. We have a corporate name. We have a corporate destiny. We have a corporate vision that God is writing. There is a corporate direction that God is moving us together when they were all together in one place. So God's doing something in the Midtown family, and part of the way that he fulfills what he's doing in the Midtown family is by doing something in each member of the Midtown family. So the wind hits everyone, but the tongues of fire come and they separate and rest on each of them. And we are only as strong in the power of God collectively as each of us allow God to do what he wants to do in us individually. Right? So as each of us are pursuing God, cultivating life in God, each of us are allowing God to deal with us. Let the fire of the Holy Spirit burn sin out of us and change paradigms and rearrange things in us and call us deeper into the holy place of God. And then we bring that together. It's like a dream team. It's like Avengers Assemble. It's like bring the best of the best. It's like the all-star game, right? So there's a way that each and every one of us partner with the work of God that makes what God wants to do in this space even that much more powerful. Are you with me today? All right? Every single one of us are cooperating with the work of God that he's doing corporately and collectively. Now, I don't have time to really lean into this. Maybe this is a Wednesday night teaching. But in the same way that if you have a critical mass of people that are embittered or offended or jaded or just like sitting back and closed off, that can stop the flow of God in a place as well. We find this when Jesus goes back to his own hometown of Nazareth, and the scriptures say that he could not perform many miracles there because of a lack of faith. The culture of that hometown There was a critical mass where there were more people that were operating in a lack of faith than were operating in faith, and it created a culture and environment that closed off the power of God from flowing through Jesus' life. That's scary. Verse 4, all of them, say all of them, were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. I love this couple of Wednesday nights ago as we were walking through scripture after scripture after scripture about the person and the power of the Holy Spirit. After that Wednesday night class, I had a brilliant young man come up to me. I mean, a man who loves God, knows God, who's been uh, studying the scriptures for years. And he just said, you know, Pastor Jade, I was not in a church where they taught about the Holy Spirit. And he said, man, it's it's eye-opening as you walk through scriptures, particularly in the book of Acts, He says the Holy Spirit is everywhere, everywhere, and it's true. I mean, you have to work really hard. I mean, if if you have any level of familiarity or in-depth reading of the Scriptures, you have to work very, very hard to ignore how much the Holy Spirit is at work in the Gospels, in the life and ministry of Jesus, 
and in the life and ministry of the early church. And I'm going to explain why. Let me start like this. I want to talk about what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not. Let's talk about what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not because, sadly, and I'll be the first to own this, there have been a lot of abuses, there have been a lot of errors, there has been a lot of immaturity in charismatic churches. And there's reasons for that that I'm not going to get deeply into, but a lot of it is because there are errors and fallacies around the idea of what the Holy Spirit is or the Holy Spirit-filled life. Here's a couple of them. Number one, friends, the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not an indicator of salvation. There's been false teachings that have gone on that said, and this is typically more like 30 to 50 years ago, where there was an idea that came out that said, if you are not baptized in the Holy Spirit with some evidence of speaking in tongues, then you are in fact not saved. Friends, that's false. We are saved by belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he is the Son of God who died for our sins, who was resurrected from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit, and who is coming again. You believe that, you are saved. Number two, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not an indicator of spiritual maturity. In fact, when Paul is writing in most of the theological work that we have around the ministry of the Holy Spirit is found in the book of 1 Corinthians. And 1 Corinthians is perhaps one of the most immature churches in all of the New Testament churches. And part of it is because of this fallacy right here. Because the church at Corinth was operating in the gifts at the expense or in substitution of their own spiritual maturity. So be careful for those of you who operate in the gifts. The gifts and the callings of God, they are without repentance. They are free and they are available to all of us, but they are not an indicator that you are spiritually mature. Number three, they're not for the spiritually elite. Another way of saying this is they're not for a chosen few. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is for every believer in Jesus. I personally believe that when we look at the gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you're going to find something called the gift of tongues. But then when we go on in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, you see Paul exhorting people to pray in tongues. And he says, I pray in tongues more than all of you, and I wish that all of you would pray in tongues. There is a distinction between the gift of tongues for the corporate edification that is associated with interpretation And there is a distinction between that and what I would call a a personal devotional tongue that is available to every single believer. And it's not something to be afraid of. It's something to be coveted. It's something to be desired. It is a good and necessary gift that God has made available to the people of God. In fact, in a few weeks, I'm going to be talking about specifically tongues, just talking about tongues. All right. Uh, number four, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not a feeling. Now, there are feelings that are associated with it, but heightened feelings do not necessarily equal the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You could be baptized in the Holy Spirit and potentially not feel a thing or not be overcome by emotion. Number five, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not a substitute for the fruit of the Spirit. 
And the baptism of the Holy Spirit does not mean that you have more love, peace, joy, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, meekness, and self-control. Those are developed in the yoke of discipleship. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, number six, does not, equal, does not mean you are possessed. God does not possess us. He influences us. He fills us. He always works together with us. And for those of you who have heard that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is from the devil, uh, let me just emphatically and clearly and authoritatively say, it is not from the devil, brothers and sisters. This is a good gift that is from God. Okay, let's talk about what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is. Number one, I'm going to say something that I have never heard before. And it might bother some of you. But as I've been sitting on this, I I think I've come to believe that what I'm going to say to you is is right on. Go with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Oh, how we love the scriptures. Do you love the scriptures, church? Acts chapter 1. I'm going to skip over the first three verses. That just sets the context here. Jesus is sitting with his disciples. He has just been resurrected from the dead a few days earlier. And he's kind of right in the middle of this space where he is preparing them for his ultimate departure. And we find out in verse 4, it says, On one occasion... While Jesus was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. I'm going to start from the top again. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Friends, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a command to be obeyed. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is a command. And this is the phrase that I'm using that I have never, ever heard. I've grown up now in Pentecostal charismatic churches for the good part of about 30 years of my life. And I'm thankful for it. I cannot imagine my life without the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Cannot imagine my prayer life without tongues. Cannot imagine my faith without the Spirit of God activating faith. Cannot imagine my passion levels and my hunger levels without the abiding and outpouring presence of the Holy Spirit. But I have never heard that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is actually a command to be obeyed. Let me, let me walk this out. This word here, command, I actually started digging a little bit deeper. Let me just read off some of the instances where this word command has been utilized. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 5, Jesus sent out his disciples on a mission trip, and he gave them certain instructions for them to follow. Do you remember that? Don't take a cloak. Don't take a tunic. When you go into someone's house, bless it with your peace. Like, there's instructions that he gives them for their deployment. Here's what I want you to hear. I want you to think about a military unit being sent out. And they're not just being sent out arbitrarily. How many of you are in the military or you know somebody in the military? Just raise your hand. How many of you know that when you're sent out, you're not sent out and it's, hey, whenever you get there, man, just have a really good time. Don't blow up too much stuff. Come back safe and uh, bring back a couple of trinkets and uh, tell us some good stories. 
right? No, you go out with very specific marching orders. That's the same word, commands. Jesus sent out his disciples, and he sent them out with commands, instructions to be followed. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 35, Jesus makes all of the disciples, he commands the disciples to direct 5,000 people to sit down in an orderly way so that he can feed them. You guys remember this? All right, so how many of you know that when you got about 5,000, and that's men only, so potentially 10 to 12,000 human beings all gathered together and they're hangry, you need a little bit of order, right? So Jesus says he directs them or he commands them to sit down. And then we find in Mark and Luke's account that he actually has them sit down in an orderly way. So commands are given by God for order. They're given for direction. They're given for order. Uh, let's look right here at uh, Luke chapter 5, verse 14. This is when Jesus heals the man with leprosy. And this man is so excited, he wants to go tell everybody. And what does Jesus tell him to do? Jesus commanded him. He ordered him not to tell anyone. It's not an opinion. It's not a suggestion. It's not a recommendation. Let's look at a couple others. In Luke chapter 8, verse 29, this is my favorite use of this. Luke chapter 8, verse 29, Jesus casts out the legion of demons from the man known as the demoniac. Do you remember this? And what, what does he do? Does, does he have a conversation and does he politely suggest that this legion of demons leave this man? Hey, guys. If it's okay with you, whenever it seems good, if it's convenient, would you guys just please? He's like, get out in the name of me. <laughs> right? This is, this is that word. This is the same word. So let's, let's put all of these together now. So the same word that Jesus uses to his disciples when he says, listen, boys, don't you dare leave Jerusalem. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift. This was not a recommendation. This is the same word that Jesus uses over and over and over in the Gospels to command people what to do, to give them direction for their assignment, to give them order for chaos, and to expel demons from people. This is the same word. This brings me to my conclusion. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is a command to be obeyed. Look again with me, if you would, at Acts chapter 1, verse 4. This is what he says. He says, do not leave Jerusalem. Why would they leave Jerusalem? Anybody have any idea? Right? There's two. There's two potential reasons. Number one, they were afraid for their lives. What happened in Jerusalem? Jesus got brutally executed. That happened. And so they're thinking to themselves, hey, listen, the longer we stick around here, those same guys who killed them, when they find out who we are and where we are and who we were with, they're coming after us too. And here's what Jesus says. You need the power of the Holy Spirit to help you fight fear. Then here's a second reason why they would want to leave Jerusalem. Some of them were like, oh, my gosh, like Jesus has just appeared to us, and he's resurrected from the dead, and we're going to go out, and we're going to make this happen. And here's what Jesus said. Boys, you've been with me for three and a half years. You have personally witnessed me being crucified. You have personally witnessed me being resurrected from the dead. I have personally discipled you for 40 days about the kingdom. And with all of that, I'm here to tell you this. You're not ready yet. Are you catching that? There's something else you lack. 
There is one crucial thing that you absolutely must have if you're going to establish the church in a persecuted culture. You need something. It's called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. If you're going to withstand Roman emperors, if you're going to withstand Judaism, if you're going to withstand the law, if you're going to withstand sexual immorality and a pantheon of gods, do you know what you need? You need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift. Friends, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a gift, is a command to be obeyed. Let's keep reading here in Acts chapter 1 verse 4 again. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift. Everybody say, wait for the gift. Friends, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not only a command to be obeyed, it is a gift to be received. It is a gift to be received. And every good gift that God gives to us, it is for your good. How is it over the course of 2,000 years that the good gift that God has promised to us has been turned into something that the enemy is involved in? How did that happen? Now, it's, it's brilliant on the enemy's part. Like, if, if I'm your enemy... And there is one thing that God says, you need this in order for you to walk in authority and power and to establish my kingdom. I'm going after that. I'm confusing it. I'm misinterpreting it. I'm making sure you know nothing about it. I'm making sure you don't even know that the most powerful weapon in your arsenal is even available to you. I'm saying it's the boogeyman. I'm saying that people are making it up. I'm doing everything I can to keep that one powerful weapon away from you. And that's what he's done for 2,000 years. He has brought such a measure of confusion and division. And friends, I don't know how much more clearly we can put it right here. I mean, let me say this humbly. Look at your Bibles. Do not leave Jerusalem. Wait for the gift Language in the scriptures is very strategic. Look with me, if you would, here at Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. This is after Peter stands up, and he is explaining to the crowd of people that have come some out of curiosity and some out of mockery, and Peter is explaining to them what is happening. I encourage you all to read Acts chapter 2. But then he stands up and he makes this really powerful statement, verse 38. Peter replied, now here's what you need to do. After seeing the demonstration of the power of the Spirit, after hearing the gospel proclaimed, okay, this is your response. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, many of us have grown up with the understanding that the gift of the Holy Spirit is the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit that we receive upon salvation. And that would be true, but it would only be partially true. And the reason why it is only partially true is because there is another part to this gift. Are you with me today? How many of you guys like getting gifts? 
right? Just a handful of us. Okay, for those of you who like giving gifts, so yesterday was my son's birthday, and Grandpa Duncan sent him. Grandpa Duncan's living in Korea, and he and his wife, they sent my, my, my boy a couple of gifts, and it was a two-part gift, right? So we opened up the bag, and gift number one is the hat that he's wearing right there, but gift number two, there was something a little bit deeper in the bag. There was two parts to the gift. And then after he received that gift, mom and dad had a gift that complemented grandpa's gift. So when Peter says, repent and be baptized and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, there is the indwelling spirit who has been given to you upon believing God at salvation. And there's a counterpart to that gift. Look with me at Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. In the book of Acts, we find, chapter 8, we find a man by the name of Philip, who was one of the deacons in Acts chapter 6, and he is sent out by the power of the Holy Spirit to the region of Samaria, beginning in verse 14. Philip goes and he preaches and he proclaims the gospel in Samaria. He demonstrates the power of the kingdom of God. He displaces demonic powers in that region. And people are hearing this and they're seeing the power of God displayed through the Holy Spirit and they hear the gospel and they believe. Verse 14, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, it means that they became believers in Jesus, they then sent Peter and John to Samaria. And when they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, wait a minute. Luke, what do you mean simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus? I happen to believe that the baptism of the Lord Jesus is pretty powerful, especially in that day and that age. So why are you using this relegating language? They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. He's making a point here. The point here he's making is there's more. They believed in Jesus, and based on the fact that they believed in Jesus, they were baptized. And based on the fact that they were baptized, they received the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And the apostles recognized, you need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but you need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You need the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. You need the infilling of the Holy Spirit. You have the reservoir now. Now you need the overflow. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is like that well in John chapter 4 when Jesus is talking to the woman in Samaria. And he says, if you knew who it was who was asking you for a drink of water, you'd ask me and I would give you water that never runs dry. Right? You will never thirst again. That's the indwelling Holy Spirit. But then in John chapter 7, Jesus stands up to everyone there and he says, There will be rivers of living water that bubble up from that well and they flow through your life. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Two-part gift. Keep reading with me, verse 16. Because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them, they had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. You should put in parentheses the baptism of the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. And he said, give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter answered, may your money perish with you because you thought that you could buy the gift 
of God. Friends, the Holy Spirit is a gift to be received. We find in the book of James chapter 1 that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father who is above. We find in Luke chapter 11 that Jesus says that how many of you being evil, if your child asks you for a fish, would you give him a snake? If your child asked you for a piece of bread, would you give them a stone? No, but every person who asks their father for a gift, for a good gift, for the gift of the Holy Spirit, God will give them good gifts. And you know what he's addressing here? If you think, again, symbolically, snakes and scorpions and stones throughout Scripture, particularly snakes and scorpions, they're utilized to symbolize the demonic And Jesus is already setting up a precursor to this idea that what if I ask for the baptism of the Holy Spirit and I open myself up to to demons? Jesus is saying that's impossible. Why would God ever promise you the baptism of the Holy Spirit and then the moment that you step out in faith to receive it, he goes, psych! (laughs) And then he sneaks a demon in there. Like, just like, think about it logically. It's not even common sense, right? So the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a command to be obeyed. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is a promise to be believed. A promise to be believed. And finally, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a teaching to be perceived. Look with me at Acts chapter 1, verse 4 again. It's amazing that all of this is right there in one verse. On one occasion... While he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift that my father promised. Oh, hold on real quick, y'all. Hold on. There's another point here. Not only is it a command to be obeyed, not only is it a gift to be received, it's a promise. I mean, let's, 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 let's look at this. On one, I should have underlined all this for us. On one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Let's go back up to that verse, please. He gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift, the gift that my father promised. Right? So not only is the baptism of the Spirit a gift, friends, it's a promise. It is a promise. And what do we do with promises? We believe them and we receive them by faith. Look with me at Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, this is Luke's version of the Great Commission. Most of us are familiar with Matthew's version of the Great Commission in Matthew 28, verse 18 and 19. Right? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. This is Luke's version of that moment, beginning right here in verse 49. Luke says, I am going to send you what my father has, say it with me real loud, promised. I am going to send you what my father has promised. I am going to send you what my father has promised. But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. This is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It is a promise to be received. It is a promise to be believed. Friends, I pray that faith is awakened in your heart today to believe for this promise. Look with me going back to Acts chapter 2. Again, this is Peter addressing the crowd 
on the day of Pentecost, after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2. Look at verse 32. Acts chapter 2, verse 32. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, Jesus has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see in here. I want us to look at this again because this is really critical, I think, for us to trust what is happening. Jesus is the one who's exalted to the right hand of God by the resurrection. And you know what we do as good evangelicals? We go, check, I believe that, I'm, that's, I'm safe with that, Right? He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit. Most of us don't realize that. But one of the reasons why Jesus had to ascend after his resurrection to the Father was so that the Father could give the full measure of the Holy Spirit back to Jesus. When Jesus was baptized... And you look at all the gospel accounts, what you'll find is that every gospel account, when Jesus comes up out of the waters of baptism, the Holy Spirit comes. He comes upon Jesus in full measure. So in one moment, Jesus receives the indwelling and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in its fullness, which enabled Jesus to do everything that Jesus did in his ministry. Jesus preached every sermon by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Jesus raised up Lazarus by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus did every miracle. Jesus raised up Jairus' daughter and healed the man with leprosy. Everything Jesus did, it was all done by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And then when Jesus is crucified, he goes down into the deep. He comes back. He spends time with his disciples and he goes, guys, I got to go. Because if I don't go, we find in John chapter 16, Jesus says, Everything that I walked in, you can't do it. But if I go, watch this, if we could, Acts chapter 2, back on the screen. Acts chapter 2, verse 32. If I go, God has raised this Jesus to life. We are witnesses of it. Verse 33. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit. So now Jesus has been ascended to the Father, and Jesus has received back the fullness of the Holy Spirit so that he could do what? Pour it out. Pour it out. Pour it out. This is what's happening on the day of Pentecost. Jesus is pouring out the Holy Spirit on the church. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is a command to be obeyed. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is a gift to be received. And the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a promise to be believed. Amen. Let me have the worship team come forward. There's a lot more that we could say about this, but we'll leave that for Wednesday nights. Friends, will you stand with me this morning? We're going to be really gentle about this. I'm going to have the worship team come forward. And what we're going to do is, before we even come to the table, I'm going to invite our altar team to come forward. Come all the way up here to the front. And if you're here today and you would say, man, I've never heard this before, or I'm hearing this in a different way, or I realize now that I've never been baptized in the Holy Spirit. I've said yes to Jesus. I've been baptized in water. But I can't tell you, preacher, with a lot of, you know, definitiveness that I have, in fact, been baptized with the Holy Spirit. Well, friends, it's so simple. 
I just want to invite you to come up to one of these altar workers here and just say, I want to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And all they're going to do is they're going to place their hand in your hand or they're going to place their hand on your shoulder. And they're just going to pray a real simple, sweet prayer. And they're going to say, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And you don't have to be afraid of that. This, remember, this is a good gift. God's not going to give you. He's not going to trick you. He's not going to give you a bad gift when he promises you a good gift. All right? So here's what we're going to do for a few minutes. Uh, we're, going to have a, we're going to have worship and ministry time. And then we're going to come to the table. And I just want us all right now, if we could, just open up our hands. And I want us to thank God for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I want us to ask Jesus to pour out his spirit on our lives afresh and anew. Friends, you need the baptism of the Holy Spirit for your marriage. You need the baptism of the Holy Spirit to fight off demonic thoughts and imaginations that are within you and around you. You need the baptism of the Holy Spirit to believe the Word of God. You need it for revelation and illumination of the Scriptures. You need it to walk out the calling that God has given to you. So right now, Father, I pray that you would pour out your Spirit upon us this morning. Friends, I want to invite us all to pray this prayer together. And Seth, you just go ahead and start whenever you want. Friends, I want to invite us all to pray this. Father, I believe the Holy Spirit is for me. Father, I believe you gave your spirit to Jesus and he has poured it out on the church. So I ask you today for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I ask you to fill me. Holy Spirit, I trust you. Rest on my life and give me power to be a witness in Jesus' name. Now, friends, I want to invite you to come up here to the front if you want someone to lay hands on you. Let's take about five minutes just to sit in this space of ministry and prayer and worship, and then I'll come back up and I'll lead us to the table.